The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Michael T. McRae. Michael is a storyteller and the author of three books, including a new book, I Am Not Your Enemy. He serves at Narrative 4, a global storytelling nonprofit. Michael, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Really delighted to be here. All right, before we get into the nitty-gritty of, of the book, uh, let's learn a little bit more about you. Um, you live in Nashville, which means you've got to be a hot chicken fan, but what else do we need to know about you? <laughs> uh, you know, actually, I'm not a huge into hot chicken. You know, I, I'm going to disappoint you there. I like uh, medium range chicken in terms of the heat. I don't like my food to hurt me. That's my policy. Um, so uh, other important things. Um, I, I, yeah, I live here in Nashville with my wife, Brittany, and we have an 11-week-old baby uh, named Rowan. Uh, wow, so he congratulations. Was, he was, thank you. He was just born on May the 4th. Um, so we're adjusting to parenthood, which is a real delight and a real exhaustion. Uh, so uh, that's been quite a, quite a fun and overwhelming journey. Um, so that's the big big news at the moment, and then kind of adapting to life and, and COVID and how to stay in touch with people and, and also be safe and take care of 
of this uh, this new vulnerable life. So um, been a bit complicated, but uh, been in Nashville for about uh, 13 years. Um, was born in Texas, grew up in East Tennessee, lived in the same house for 19 years uh, in a small rural town um, in the uh, in kind of the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, came to Nashville for college and then haven't left. Um, so yeah. Well, a couple things we need to come back to. Number one is it makes sense. You know, your your profession is telling stories. So you've got to take care of that that palette. You got to take care of the the voice box. You don't need to be <laughs> stuffing anything too hot. Friend of the program and also fellow uh, Nashvillian uh, Zach Hunt. Uh, he doesn't necessarily care for hot chicken, but he talked a lot about. He's big into the barbecue scene there in Tennessee, and I actually oh, yeah. proceed to ask him: Is there a barbecue scene in Nashville? So that that sparked a, a long debate. The other thing that I'm excited <laughs> for you and and your spouse is your child was born on a global holiday. Um, you know, Star Nashville, Wars Day. Yeah, Star Wars Day, May, May the fourth. Yeah. So that's right. Uh, that child I, might be the chosen one. Yeah, I think so. Um, we, yeah, his uh, his grandmother made him a shirt that that was in the Star Wars font that said "May the Fourth be with you," uh, and has on the back of it it says a little onesie. It says "Little Skywalker." Um, so we're yeah, we're pretty we're pretty stoked about it. <laughs> or little Palpatine, if you want to be new. Oh no, we can't go. I reject it. I reject it outright. So <laughs> well, you know, uh, I guess in a sense, uh, no spoiler alerts or anything. But uh, you know, Ray rejected her Palpatine uh, heritage and sure. took on the Skywalker name. But she she showed that there is some goodness among the Pal- Palpatine. So yeah, I just reject that whole storyline. I think J.J. Abrams really messed it up at the end. But that's a whole different podcast. So. Well, I mentioned that this podcast conversation might be 35 to 40 minutes, but it might just be five. You know, we're, we're about to go down a road. We're about to go down a, a very offensive road for me. Um, yeah. Okay. We, we won't go there. So, we won't. Um, yeah, this is, I, this is how we practice living well with difference right here. So, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you're, the name of the book is I am not your enemy, but those words that you just used are coming so close that they're yeah. right there. Um, yeah. All right. Can, well, at least our, we'll, we'll, we'll step out of our dump for just a second, uh, you know, just a moment. But can we at least agree that Rogue One is in the top three of the Star Wars movies? Uh, well, I, I did love Rogue One. I, I don't know where I would rank it, but I did think it was a quality film. So I enjoyed that one quite a lot. I'm not ashamed to say that it's Empire, then Rogue One, and then the rest is another conversation. So Okay. Empire okay. is definitely my number one as well. I'll agree with you there. Well, good. We found some common ground. So, all right, we we'll did. get to the book in just a second, but, but tell us about your work <laughs> at, at Narrative 4. Yeah, so one of the big things that I that I do in terms of, of story work uh, is with this organization called Narrative 4, where uh, Narrative 4 is a global nonprofit, which is trying to use the power of personal story exchanges to build empathy, create connection, and shatter stereotypes. So my role there is I'm, uh, I was a staff member until my son was born, and then I transitioned into consulting. So um, my, my role there is to help them with programming, help with facilitation, help to train practitioners. Um, and what we're trying to do is use this methodology of narrative for called a story exchange uh, in order to, as I said, expand empathy in the world. And the methodology is one where you get a group of people together in a circle, um, pairs get to exchange stories with one another, but then you will retell your partner's story to the whole group using first person pronouns. So you actually take on that person's name and say, hi, I am 
and tell the partner the story you receive from your partner in this first person language as if it were your own. Um, and so it's a really, really powerful methodology that captivated me a few years ago when I first went through it. And um, kind of as a, I, I encountered it after I'd written the, the book, I'm Not Your Enemy, right? At least after I'd encountered those stories. Uh, and there was so much in the book um, uh, about uh, the role of empathy and creating the world that we that we might hope for. And so Narrative 4 felt like a really um, uh, necessary and obvious next step for me in terms of my my work, because I've come to see a lot of my work as lying at the intersection of, of storytelling and peace building. So how is it that we can use uh, narrative and stories as tools for creating this connection that we want for uh, making the world more peaceful um, and in trying to heal harm. Uh, and so um, I've done that through leading story retreats. I've done that through um, public storytelling events. I run a public storytelling event in Nashville and I've been doing that for uh, seven years now every month. And um, I've done that through uh, storytelling for advocacy um, and kind of through my writings, all kinds of ways. But um, a very active way for me now is this facilit- story exchange facilitation through the work of Narrative 4. Well, um, maybe tell us a little bit about what kind of force awakens when we tell the story of someone else. <laughs> yeah, I, do, yeah, don't, I definitely noticed the Star Wars language there. So I think we're going to keep talking about this throughout <laughs> the conversation. Um, yeah, it's, it is amazing what happens when someone takes on the other person's story. I mean, this isn't always true, but it is, it is often true that, um, that there is there's a distance that is shortened. You know, there's a great phrase that the shortest distance between two people is a story. And when, when I take on your story as if it were mine, it's a way of kind of dethroning myself from the center of the world and imagining that there could be another truth um, that exists in the world than my own, that there could be another way of experiencing life than the way that I experience it, another way of seeing the world than my own vantage point. Um, and so it's a really humbling process. And, um, in an expansive process where we're able to kind of um, to expand our own vi- vision and, and, and imagination about what's possible in the world. And there are these deep emotional connections that people have so that they can walk into a story exchange, not knowing each other. And, you know, within an hour and a half or so of this process, there's this deep bond. I mean, I know people have done one story exchange together, but have stayed friends over the two years since I led one. Um, and that there are these real possibilities for, for connection and intimacy that are created through this exchange. But I've also seen people develop a profound empathy for themselves. Um, so for instance, I did a story exchange once where um, I, I brought a really diverse group of people together and there was a woman of color who walked into the room and I knew immediately that she did not really want to be there, that she had been encouraged by a friend. Um, when she walked into the room, she was the only person of color in the room. Um, so I went up to check in on with her and she admits, she's like, yeah, I don't really want to be here, but I'm going to stay anyway. And, you know, so I'm going to make this work. And so she ended up trading stories with another, another woman. And, um, and her story was a deeply, deeply painful one about immigrating to the United States and being brought up in foster care and just abuse after abuse. And it was full of trauma. And so when we got to the actual retelling of the stories where her partner was supposed to retell her story. Um, uh, this woman's partner couldn't speak. She was like completely 
uh, muted in um, overwhelming emotion of the grief of the story. And it took her a long time to even be able to open her mouth, but she finally was able to tell the story. And at the end of it, when we were reflecting, this the, the woman kind of at the beginning whose story was so traumatic was a t- completely different person where she had come in looking and feeling so weighted down. She now looked like she was going to float out of her chair. And so I asked her what she was feeling. And she said, what was amazing to me was as I watched my partner struggle to tell my story and just to see her writhe in pain on the couch, trying to find the courage to share the story. I had this overwhelming urge to just hug her and hold her in the pain of her story. And then she paused and said, and that's what I've realized I've never been able to do for myself. I have never been able to hold myself in my pain and have compassion uh, for, uh, for what I've gone through. And so it was a remarkable moment because I was like, in this, we've t- typically thought of these exchanges as ways of building empathy uh, between people. But what happened here was this person developed empathy for herself in a way that she wasn't expecting. Um, and so there was something about her partner, actually, for, of her being able to let go of her story, hand it to someone else for a second. Uh, was to her a, a sense of shared burden now. This wasn't only her story to bear. And in having someone to hold that story with her gave her this, this distance from it to be able to say, actually, I, I've got some uh, attending I need to do to myself in terms of my kindness and my gentleness with myself. And so that was a really beautiful uh, moment that, I, that is indicative of what can happen during a story exchange. As you alluded to before, you're the organizer and host of a community storytelling event in Nashville. Tell us uh, what it is and how it got started. Yeah, it's called 10 by 9, 10-minute um, stories by nine people. And so it's a Belfast-originated event. When I, when I moved to, to grad school um, in 2012, I moved to Belfast to study conflict resolution and reconciliation. And I... Um, I didn't know anyone in Ireland, and I, I knew a guy in Nashville who had lived in Ireland, and I said, hey, who should I meet when I move to, to Belfast? And he gave me three names, so I reached out to all three of them. The first person wrote back and said, oh, let me know when you're in town. We'll try to meet up at some point. The second person said, um, uh, let's schedule a coffee for the week that you're here, and so I actually had a plan then to meet someone. The third person was a guy named Padre Gotuma who said, uh, who's picking you up from the airport? <laughs> and I said, no one. I don't know anyone here. He goes, I'll be there to get you. So he was the very first person I met when I got off the plane. And when I, we were driving in from the airport to Belfast, I said, how can I, can I repay you for the gas for this? He said, just come to this storytelling event that I run with my partner, Paul, called 10 by 9. And I was like, great, that sounds amazing. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever been to a live public storytelling event. Um, and I was completely hooked. It's nine people with 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their life based on a theme. Uh, I went every single month that I was in Belfast, and then I asked if I could start 10 by 9 in Nashville. Um, at that time, they didn't have any other 10 by 9s anywhere in the world. Belfast was the only one, but they said, oh, why not? Let's see how it goes. And so I came home and launched it in Nashville in September 2013, uh, and have run one at least one every month since. We've had over 750 stories told on stage uh, by about 400 different storytellers. Uh, I ran it in prison for a while. Um, and we've done collaborations with all kinds of um, conferences, festivals, and organizations. But it is the only agenda to 10 by 9 is to give real people a chance to tell their real stories to one another. Um, we, there's, a, there's an Irish proverb 
that is tr can be translated in English as it is in the shelter of each other that the people live. And that's what I think we're trying to do at 10 by nine is to say, maybe we can create a little bit of shelter for one another through the telling of our stories. How is it that, that we can kind of build a sense of, of community and connection and, um, uh, through the, the telling of these, these stories. So, um, yeah, it's a really beautiful event. We've now moved everything online for the moment. So we're doing this on Zoom. And, and now we've got people from California and Mexico and all over calling in. And so it's become this, uh, this kind of global event as well, which has been really fun. Um, yeah. We've got a new book out. I am not your enemy stories to transform a divided world. <clears throat> this book is an invitation to seek reconciliation and peace building in a deeply divisive world. Um, we are wise to consider carefully um, how we might learn to live together well with those we find difficult, you wrote. What makes for peace is the capacity to live with differences in such a way that bears fruit rather than arms. Differences and disagreement are guaranteed for human relationships. Um, I wonder if you'll tell us what inspired you to write the book now. Yeah, um, I when I first got the, the kind of idea for this project, it was back in 2015 or so. And um, I just remember feeling like the, the kind of public um, uh, storytelling that happens through the news and other, other kind of uh, media were very, it was very dark, very bleak. Um, you know, this was a time when, uh, ISIS was in the news a lot. You know, there was the Ferguson uprising happening, Baltimore um, uh, uprising as well. Donald Trump was running for president, and that was getting a lot of coverage. And, and there was just this, there was this overwhelming sense of like the stories that we are hearing constantly in our news feeds are, um, feel to me like they're perpetuating division um, because there's no, there's no offering of a way to see this that can lead toward a better way of living together. And so um, I was I was very convicted that the stories that we tell directly affect our ability to imagine the world. And so if we tell stories um, that begin and end with division, then that's the way that we'll think the world can work. And so we have to really be intentional to say uh, to tell stories that show us even in the midst of division, there are ways to live together well among those that are different. And so I, I thought maybe it would be useful for me to go to some countries where as Americans, at least, we look and say, oh, this is a divided society, Israel, Palestine, Northern Ireland, South Africa, these are places of great division. And then say, well, then where are the stories there of people who have overcome, who are dealing with and healing from the worst harms we can imagine, and yet are finding a way to, to try to work for a, a better um, society and a better world in, in their particular uh, corners of the earth, uh, so that we might see with a new sense of clarity uh, our own place. And that was very much for me, a central point in the book was to say, I want to tell these stories that I'm encountering overseas, but always with a lens toward what does this tell me about back home? Because uh, it doesn't, in my mind, do me a lot of good to just know, um, oh, well, here's what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Here's what's happening in Northern Ireland. Uh, if I'm not trying to see how does that influence and, and impact my engagement with my own issues at home? Um, and so I, I went in 2015 to gather these stories. Um, 
actually not intending to publish them as a book. It was a collaboration with a with TCU, Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. And so there's the students in some of their classes were engaging with these stories. But as I encountered them, I thought this is these are too powerful to limit to just the classroom. I want to make them accessible to to more people. And so I spent a few years trying to put them into uh, into a book. And then of course it came out in in April and and it has turned out that even though if even if it hadn't been for the uprising that's happening in the streets right now and other things, like I think it would still be a relevant and timely book, but I think it has felt even more so um, that, you know, just two months after the publication, uh, there have been, you know, protests for the last 50 or, you know, or so days um, around some of the issues that they come up in, in the, the book around uh, division and trauma and, and oppression and this idea of reconciliation and justice and how do these work together and, um, yeah. And so it was, it was this kind of way of saying how, what can, what wisdom can we learn from, from other places around how to deal with our own wounds at home? Well, you alluded to um, just now when you were talking about, um, you know, bringing these stories back for students uh, at TCU that were going to engage them, uh, but kind of backing up and planning this, how did you select the places you went um, mm. knowing that you would find stories of division there? Yeah. Um, well, Israel and Palestine, there's a sense to which I think I felt like I was kind of born into an involvement in that in that place. My granddad was an archaeologist and a New Testament professor. Uh, so he made his first a trip to Israel in 1967 and ended up going 25 times over the course of his life. And so my dad lived in Jerusalem for a bit as a kid. And my first international trip was to Israel when I was 11. Um, my family lived there for a month and, uh, when I was 12 and, um, and so I've now been about 13 times in a variety of different capacities living in the West bank at various times. Uh, my first book was about, <coughs> excuse me, was about, um, living in the West bank and working with Christian peacemaker teams doing nonviolent direct action. And, um, so there was, I, I felt already I had a deep involvement in that place. It was an international conflict that I knew really well. I teach on the history of it in college. And, and so I had lots of connections and I knew that I could find the stories I was looking for. In Northern Ireland, I had lived there in Belfast for grad school, studying conflict resolution, reconciliation. So again, I knew that I could find the stories that I was looking for. And then because I study and teach on reconciliation and conflict, South Africa was a place that I've always um, read about, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the dealings with uh, of apartheid. Uh, so I've, I've always wanted to go there as well. And so, um, then that was a matter of just reaching out to, uh, I just did some research found organizations that I thought was doing good work and, and reached out to see if they would collaborate with me um, on those. And, and there's also three places that, especially for people probably over 40 or 50 in the US, um, they're going to associate, they hear Northern Ireland, you hear South Africa, you're going to think, you know, apartheid, the troubles, you're, you're going to think of division. Um, and so I knew that this, for my primary, primary audience for this book, these three locations um, would immediately tell people, oh, we're dealing with divided societies. Um, and so then how could I tell stories that kind of upended their expectations a bit in terms of saying, you know, uh, these stories don't play out the way that we might expect. Yes, there were murders of loved ones, but here's how people responded in ways that would surprise you. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. 
Our experienced and highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. You know, as as you look at these stories, and these are impactful stories, uh, you know, a woman who meets her father's killer, grieving parents crossing nationalistic lines, meet together. You know, of all these stories, which was the most personally transformational and why? Hmm. That's a great question. I, um, there are a few, I mean, I don't know if I could limit it to one. There are a few that just come to mind. Um, some of them weren't so much, a couple of the things that were really impactful weren't just the stories, uh, but it was, a, sometimes it was just a, even a sentence that somebody said to me. Um, and so, for instance, the very first chapter in the book is called Dialogue is Not the Goal. And I was meeting with a Palestinian peace builder named Ali Abu Awad, who um, had spent time in Israeli prison for resistance to the occupation. His uh, brother had been murdered uh, by Israeli soldiers. And he was he was uh, dedicated himself to trying to build nonviolent um, movement, a social movement among Palestinians. But at, at one point in our conversation, he said, for me, dialogue is not the goal dialogue has to be a tool for my liberation. And if not, it it can become a means of my oppression. And that statement hit me in the chest, kind of like a thunderbolt. And especially as a white person of privilege in the US, I immediately thought of how many times either myself or people that I knew and cared about would say things like, oh, if we could all just sit down and talk together. I mean, I'm hearing this all the time now. Why do they have to protest in the streets? Why do they have to burn stuff down? If we could all just sit and talk, we can work this out. And uh, and Ali suddenly gave me the language to say, talk to what end? Like, what is what are we imagining beyond the dialogue? because I immediately had the sense of dialogue is often the end of the imagination of people of privilege, that this is, this is what we're thinking will help us if we could just talk to one another. But Ali's saying the talking is always meant to lead towards some kind of substantive, practical, tangible change. And if, if that is not, if it's not seen as a tool for actual change that benefits people's lived experiences, then it's, it's not really of any use. And not only is it not of any use, it might actually be making things worse. So that was a really transformative conversation. Um, and then I was also thinking about uh, chapter three, which is called Something is Wounded. Uh, and it's the story of an Israeli soldier who... Uh, told me about some of the things that he had uh, he had seen and that he had done as an Israeli soldier uh, in Gaza and um, and how he when he was done with his military service, how he had this realization that something was wounded in his country that he needed to tend to, and that this this isn't something that he could just leave to the politicians and to the uh, to the government that it it required him to figure out what is my role as a uh, as an Israeli, as a person who is in power, in a sense, you know, in terms of the conflict, Israel has vast majority of the power. So, what does it mean to be a person of privilege and power in this particular land? Um, and he he said, you know, I I have to do something about this. And 
And so I felt that that was also very convicting for me to say, yeah, like this is the same for me in my country. I'm a person of power and privilege in my country and something is wounded here that needs my attending to. And it's not enough to just say, well, let's just make sure we vote for the right person for president. That won't do it. Um, it is it is about each of us and what what step we are going to take, um, what action we will we will take in order to try to heal what is wounded. Um, so there were so many like that. There were, there were encounters in, in Northern Ireland that were really, that really shaped me. Um, and one more thing to, to share was the last chapter in the book was called Cracks of Hope. And it's the story of two men, Ramiel Hanan, who's an Israeli, uh, whose daughter Smadar was killed when she was almost 14 by a Palestinian suicide bomber. And Bassam Aramin, who's a Palestinian man, whose daughter Abir was killed when she was 10 years old, coming home from school, shot in the back of the head by an Israeli soldier. And one of the things that Rami told me in their, in their work together, they worked, they're very close friends now. Um, and they work with an organization called the parent circle, which is uh, helping bereaved Israelis and Palestinians uh, find connection over their shared sense of grief and their, and from that place of pain work for uh, a more peaceful Israel and Palestine. And, and Rami said to me at one point, he said, we bang our heads against this tall wall of hatred and animosity that divides these two places. And we bang our heads against it until we will put cracks in it, cracks of hope. And I thought like that is in some ways a, such a great description of the work that we do in peace building, whether that's through building exchanges through, uh, or sorry, empathy through exchanges or whatever it might be, is that we just keep coming up against the walls that divide us from each other and we just keep ramming our heads in against it, whether that's through advocacy, through storytelling, through legislation, whatever it takes to keep banging our heads into this wall until we can begin to have cracks of hope that let us see uh, what is possible on the other side. And so there were so many moments throughout the whole trip that I thought this has the potential to, to shape both my life and the life of many people who maybe haven't been thinking about these things in the way that we could. One of the most antagonistic battles we face against peacemaking is our ability to talk with one another. And you alluded to this earlier mm. in your statement. Everyone wants to talk, but no one wants to listen and understand. And you share a very challenging story in the book that you alluded to just now, which is dialogue between a Palestinian and Israeli. And you quote one person saying, dialogue is not my goal. Dialogue is my carrier to freedom. Um, yeah. You wrote dialogue uh, as an end unto itself is inappropriate conversation because it likely benefits only those in power. I wonder if you'll take, mm. take us a little deeper there and talk to us a little bit about how we create appropriate conversations that benefit those who are powerless. Mm. Yeah, I think that, you know, what Ali was trying to say in that first chapter, um, not trying to say what he was saying very well, was that um, there are lots of he meets lots of Israelis, lots of liberal kind of lefty, he called them lefty Israelis, who were very interested in this you know, idea of dialogue. Let's meet at these conferences. Let's have these. Let's just be able to sit down together for the purpose. Usually the express purpose often with these dialogue sessions is to see one another's humanity. And I'll be the first to say, like, that is such an important, uh, important thing. And Ali said the same. This is so it's not just important. It's essential. Um, in order to transform conflict into something that can help us rather than hurt us, and conflict can help us a great deal, uh, we, ha we have to be able to see the humanity in one another. We have to resist the kind of the scales of sectarianism that can take us from 
uh, believing that just we are different and we believe differently, which is a perfectly fine thing to say, uh, it, it can, that can slide eventually down into you are demonic. Um, and when we get to that place, that's where incredible violence happens. Um, you can see this in the dehumanizing language of the white folks have used about black people in the United States for a long time, the way that the, the Hutus spoke about the Tutsis in Rwanda as cockroaches, the way that the, uh, Hitler's... Um, uh, the Nazis spoke about the Jews as being vermin and like there's all this way of dehumanizing and demonizing. So dialogue and storytelling that can lead us towards seeing each other with with humanity, new kind of lenses of humanity is so important. But Ali is saying, but that that won't solve it just to leave it there. That new understanding of humanity has to lead us towards saying, how can we now lift the knee off of each other's neck, right? Um, so it's not enough for George Floyd just to know that <laughs> that the police officer that, that killed him was a, was a human being and to see his humanity and know that he's a flawed person, likely with his own trauma, all these things. Useful to know, but what George Floyd needed was the guy's knee off of his neck. Um, and so it's that's kind of Ali's point. How does dialogue get us to that, to... to um, to changing the actual behavior, not just recognizing the humanity of our identities. And so I think in terms of how we create that together, well, one is that those dialogue sessions have to be created together. And too often what happens is if it's led and, and pushed by the people of privilege um, to say, uh, you know, this is what I think we really need. Right now, for instance, I have people coming up to me at Narrative 4 to say, white folks saying, how do I get... Um, I really want to do dialogue, story exchanges with uh, folks of color. How do I make that happen? And my first response to them is, I don't think you're ready for that. That's not the, that's not the right move at the moment because the, I don't hear people of color saying, hey, can, what I think would be really helpful right now in this moment in America is to actually hear the stories of white people. I don't hear that request being made. Uh, so it's a white request. That's, and the, what we have to interrogate is why, why is that our... Why is our desire to exchange the stories um, when that's not being asked for from the other kind of from the other side? And so we have to we have to pause and, and kind of examine our own motivations. And so I think that's an important part in building this dialogue that can work for us is to kind of examine the motivations. Are we entrusting relationships with the people that we want to talk with? Because as Adrian Marie Brown says, we have to move at the speed of trust. It's essential for every reconciliation practice or process that exists. Is um, it, it will go off the rails as soon as you try to move faster than the trust is moving. Um, and so we have to be mindful of that. And I think we also have to be um, building capacity with uh, other uh, people and organizations that are focused on a lot of the issues of like systemic injustice. So when I do story exchanges with community members and, and from narrative in the narrative four circles, I try to partner those with nonprofits that I know are doing really good justice work. So it might be that if I'm going to do a story exchange on immigration, where I want people to exchange stories, where half the people might be from the US, half the people immigrated here, I'm going to partner with the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition in Nashville that's working on uh, uh, immigrant legislation on helping empower immigrants in Nashville so that the exchange of stories is always intertwined with people who are actually out trying to concretely improve the lives of, of immigrants in Nashville. And so I, I do, I think there, there are ways to do dialogue that can move toward that kind of um, how do we actually make things uh, better, but it requires the practitioners of the dialogue, the facilitators 
um, to be building those relationships with people doing that work so that you can, um, you can kind of mutually benefit one another as opposed to kind of working in silos, which is often what happens. Someone's just like, well, my work is in dialogue. It's like, great, get really good at that. And it's fine for your work to be in dialogue, but you need to know then who's doing the work of systemic change in your area so that you can kind of cross pollinate. You've traveled around the world. You've heard lots of stories in lots of different places. You write a, uh, about a lot of challenging conflict within different types of communities. Um, you know, anthropologically, what do you think is at the root of all the vitriol, the anger, and the divisiveness? That's a great question. Um, and I think that's something that <laughs> we've been trying to figure out for a really long time. Uh, I know that, I mean, it's, it's in our hardwiring as humans um, to be on the lookout for what is other, you know, it goes back to the, the days of being afraid of saber-toothed tigers and how we were, uh, we had to train our brains and our brains do this uh, kind of automatically, but how to be able to distinguish immediately, friend or foe, is this person someone I can trust or not? And so this is still hardwired into our brains to be sorting people very quickly into um, uh, you're in or you're out. You're someone I can, I can feel safe with. You're someone who is, uh, who is a threat to me. And so I think that, that that is a big part of what plays out in these conflicts is this way of um, our understanding of, of uh, who, is, uh, who is the other. And that when we perceive something as a threat, um, it takes a lot of intentional work to unsee that that person as a threat. But and so more than likely what happens is that you begin to build up stories uh, that confirm your fear um, that tell you, oh, this person is to be a threat. I am. I need to be afraid of this person. Um, and so we, we kind of uh, we, we kind of build these narratives up on these fault lines of our uh, of our fears. And they kind of they create these earthquakes that can kind of shatter and, and, and shake us so that we, uh, we end up perpetuating all kinds of violence. And so I think that it's a large, a large part of what we are needing is, it is to have these encounters that can show us the, hu the humanity of one another, um, but recognizing that that isn't always going to be enough because a lot of this, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, the dynamics that are at play in conflict have to do with scarcity and greed, um, hoarding of resources, um, the beliefs and um, that the survival instincts and beliefs that you know we have to take care of ourselves, we have to um, we have to hoard resources so that we can look out for ourselves. And there's no greater indication of violent conflict than uh, the disparities of wealth in a society. Um, societies with great disparities in wealth are are the most likely to have a protracted civil conflict um, because people need what they need to survive and. And so I think that when we uh, when we have this sense of um, uh, of the of the other that is threatening us and that we need to kind of uh, build up our castles to protect ourselves, we begin to hoard the resources as well, um, and uh, and that leads people to commit uh, great acts of violence to try to get their basic needs met, um, which is a really common theory or common um, uh, theme throughout uh, many civil conflicts around the world. In the book, uh, you write a lot of stories about empathy. Um, you wrote, building empathy for the sake of empathy isn't enough. It should lead to compassionate action for improving the world. 
I'm finding more and more that people are willing to care deeply about a conflict for a while until it's no longer right in their faces. You know, I, I think for a lot of people, obviously on the day we're recording this in July, uh, Portland is one of the primary cities that continues to have protests. Um, but for a lot of people, they've they've almost moved on from this conversation about racism because it's no longer cycling in the news 24 seven. Um, mm -hmm. And people are even willing to care about things as long as the solution doesn't change their source of power and comfort and control, there's this mm -hmm. fear of helping others means loosening of, of self. So um, how, how do we help people work out of, uh, out of an abundance of opportunity with empathy versus viewing empathy uh, and working in a scarcity, if that makes any sense? Yeah. Well, I think we have to do it really carefully and, and, um, uh, and gently, I think, in a sense, because this is a this is a, a real complication kind of what you're what you're talking about. Because this comes up in one of the chapters, uh, chapter eight, called "When Reconciliation Means Nothing." When when this woman in Cape Town and I, uh, her name's Eleanor, we were talking about uh, this resistance that that white folks can have to kind of come to the table, so to speak, around real conversations of of um, of change. Uh, in terms of what does it look like to have more equity and empowerment and 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 justice, um, and that there's one thing to sort of have this sense of empathy. Oh my goodness, what's happening? You know, what happened to George Floyd is terrible. What's happening in the streets of America is terrible. But when it actually requires something from us, well, that's a whole different thing. Um, you know, uh, it's really easy for me to just reshare a story on Instagram with a couple of you know, and white people say racism is dead or some kind of little post that, that is in a, not meaningless, but it is only so meaningful to, uh, because it doesn't really require anything from me to post that stuff. Um, and what is more complicated is when, when people realize um, that what is really needed is a huge structural shift. And so my empathy for, in, the, in our case in America, for the black experience, um, means that I need to be calling for some kind of major shift, whether that is, whether that's an agreement in terms of defunding the police or um, um, uh, economic uh, empowerment and investment in black communities or reparations, whatever that might mean, um, that will likely result in something changing for me, possibly in a loss of resources, possibly uh, in payments that need to be made, possibly in, and, um, uh, changing where I, I have to live, who knows what would take place. But I think that's what's so frightening is, and what, what makes these conversations so difficult to have is that when you have what you have, you're not usually inclined to let go of it. Um, and there's this, it does get into this kind of scarcity uh, mindset. And so um, I don't yet know how it is that we help people see, as you're, as you're saying, this kind of empathy from the abundance mindset. But I do think these are the questions that we have to be asking is um, how can we help people of privilege see that it is, in fact, in all of our interest uh, for things to change? Uh, Eleanor in Cape Town said that there's a phrase in, in South Africa that's, um, that translates as the specter of black danger. Uh, and that... Um, and that she says that th this idea is that for white people, they live constantly in South Africa with this fear of the specter of black danger. Uh, and that she said, with that fear, you as white people are never really free um, because you're always looking over your back, afraid that the people who your ancestors stole stuff from might actually come back <laughs> for a reckoning. 
And so she said this, this whole dynamic that we're in um, of racism, of white supremacy, is, is having a disproportionate effect, of course, on people of color. And yet it is also uh, an oppression to, uh, to white psyche and white, white bodies as well in this sense of, of, um, of fear that we, that we could be free from. And so how can we begin to see this work as not just on behalf of one group of people, but as work that is for the liberation of everyone in the society? And so I think that's, that's the kind of shift we have to have in the conversation um, that might actually be, uh, be effective for us. Where does faith fit into this conversation? Uh, for me, I guess everywhere in a sense. Um, I, I grew up uh, in, the, in the church. Uh, my roots initially are in the Church of Christ. Um, but uh, my, my family left the Church of Christ when I was young because we decided we couldn't be a part of a tradition where essentially my mom couldn't do whatever my dad could do. <laughs> uh, and so there are a lot of restrictions on women in the Church of Christ. And so, um, but, but the, um, the language of Christianity, the language of the church was very alive in my childhood. But when my, when I was a kid, my dad used to talk to us about what he called the cheat sheet for the final exam, where he would say that he'd read to us from Matthew 25 and a section, I'm sure most of your listeners probably know this, but in case they don't, there's a section where Jesus is speaking to the apostles and says, that basically on the judgment day, um, that Pete, they'll be divided from one another. And, uh, and he will say to them, I was hungry and he gave me something to eat. I was uh, thirsty and he gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was naked and you clothed me. And they'll say, when on earth did we do this? And he says, well, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And what was compelling for my dad in that, I said, he said, you know, he said, look, if there's a judgment day, essentially, if there's a final exam, Jesus is telling us what's going to be on it. And it actually had nothing to do with who we claimed God to be, like whether we believed in Jesus or not. What Jesus said we were going to be asked was, where did you spend your time and who did you spend your time with? And so that became really foundational for me in terms of my understanding of faith. And that was um, wedded to the Sermon on the Mount and the way in which I saw Jesus um, working for uh, the healing and the collective liberation of his uh, of his place of calling out injustice uh, of uh, of lifting up and sp- and being in community with people who were on the margins that Jesus wasn't interested in uh, placating the uh, the powers of of trying to um, to uh, kind of perpetuate his own privilege um, he was that's not where he was spending his time and what his focus was on. And that for me has been a really, um, that's been a framework for me as I've moved into kind of thinking about stories and peace building to say, I want to, I too, in my understanding of faith, then um, want to be somebody who is helping my, my society, my culture, my world heal. Um, I want to be someone who uh, is using my privilege and power to hold the powers of my, um, my world accountable, who's calling for justice who is uh, in work and in relationship and in community with people on the margins uh, and who is using uh, the power of stories, much like Jesus did, um, to, uh, to help people see in new ways that with new eyes, perhaps we could, um, we could uh, imagine a different kind of world. Those with ears to hear, let them hear. With eyes to see, let them see. And, and I use the story about Jesus at the beginning as a framing where Jesus comes to the man in Bethsaida uh, who is blind and needing sight 
uh, and Jesus <laughs> won't just heal him, but he spits in them dirt, makes some mud and puts it in his eyes. Um, and he asks the man what he sees. And the man says, well, I can see people walking, but the, they're kind of blurry. They look like trees. And so Jesus does it again. And then uh, on the second time, the man can see. And so I, I kind of wondered, like, I don't really know what Jesus is doing. I don't know why he has to spit. Uh, I don't know why he has to do it twice. But I wonder if the storyteller, uh, whoever has written this story, has done it because they, they want us to see that change comes in steps. Uh, and that sometimes uh, things might be blurry to us. We might not be able to see. And that we need, we need other wiser people kind of to help us see the world uh, a bit more clearly. And I think that's what happened um, for a lot of, uh, especially a lot of white Americans. And this, and this may get controversial for some of the listeners, but with the election of Donald Trump, I know, I know from a lot of friends and myself and other people who were saying, didn't expect that. <laughs> um, you know, how, what is it about our country that's going to elect uh, uh, President Trump? And so there was this sense of like, we were beginning to see some new things, new dynamics in the country but they were blurry and <laughs> we couldn't quite make sense of them. And that's where I wanted these stories to come in is to say, we're waiting for someone to put the next kind of round of mud on our eyes who will help us focus and see with new clarity. And I think these stories can, these kinds of stories can do that to say, here are other people who have lived in these kinds of divisions for a long time. And here's the wisdom that they're offering. And it can give us a new way of seeing to say, maybe I've been putting too much of a focus on dialogue and not on real change. Maybe I've been underplaying the persistent trauma that exists for a lot of people in our society. Maybe I haven't been paying attention to what is really wounded in my own country. You know, so it just goes down the list of things that showed up in the book as ways to clarify uh, our vision. And to me, that is, that's gospel work. That's what I think we're called to do in the world. Well, you know, you've got another book you're you're working on. Do you want to let us know a little bit about it, a little sneak peek? Yeah, um, it's temporarily called Leaving the Right for Whatever's Left. Uh, and it is my, uh, essentially a theological memoir. And so it is about how is it that a, a white guy in the South who grew up in the buckle of the Bible Belt in the Church of Christ to, you know, um, uh, in a in a culture that was racist and homophobic and um, uh, and sexist, uh, how did I how did how was I able to leave that kind of world of thinking um, and march in the streets with Palestinians getting shot at by Israeli soldiers to become a prison abolitionist and be, do chaplaincy work on death row to countering my own internalized sexism, to trying to actively work to dismantle white supremacy, to striving to be an ally to LGBTQ people. So what is this, what is the story of this journey? Um, and so that's the, that's the next book that I, that I want to do is just trying to give voice to my own, my own path. Uh, so much of my writing so far has been trying to use my platform to bring attention to the stories of other people, which has been so meaningful. Uh, to me. And, uh, and I now want to give a little more voice to basically kind of the story behind the other books. What is it that has led me to want to care about these things and to really do some interrogation of my own life and motivations? Well, if you want to stay connected with Michael, uh, visit michaelmcray.com. Of course, follow him on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Go out and purchase I Am Not Your Enemy wherever books are sold. Michael, thank you for inviting us to an empathy that leads to compassionate action for improving our world.
Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It was a real delight. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.